Just a few miles from here, we have the uh, Orion crew module for Artemis II. We have the crew module for III. You'll hear about the development going on on those, on the core stage for future missions, on the advanced programs we have. So hardware-rich is a great place to be. Artemis I is that first step down this path. When we talk about sustained exploration on the lunar surface and getting onto Mars, Artemis I is that step. From the Defense and Aerospace Report, this is The Downlink, a podcast about the intersection of space, the space business, and defense. Not just what's over the horizon, but what's happening above it. I'm your host, Laura Winter. Hello, Downlink listeners. As I'm recording this intro, we've got roughly 16 hours until ignition. That's when NASA's massive space launch system takes off with a human-rated capsule and launches to and beyond the moon. This is the Artemis One mission. It's a crewless test of the spaceflight system NASA hopes to use to send astronauts and supplies to the moon and possibly beyond. This episode is not going to be your normal hoorah pre-launch coverage. That does not mean it's pessimistic either. Events such as these are rarely clear-cut, and that's something I hope that you, my listeners, embrace. The expert guests that we have for this episode are looking at the Artemis One mission and the Artemis program to unpack the geostrategic security implications, what this all amounts to for entrepreneurs looking to locate their business models to the moon, and whether any of this activity adds to the calculus investors use to size up the business case for commercial lunar activity. Why? Because with all human expansion, you first have the explorers, then the traders, and then the military follows to secure that prospective treasure. You can get the exploration angle from any number of news organizations, but let me give you a quick and dirty rundown of what's being launched. The SLS is a super heavy rocket. It should be able to send almost 60,000 pounds into deep space. That makes it the most powerful rocket NASA owns, and it's very fast. When the main engines cut off, it will be traveling at 18,000 miles an hour, just faster than Mach 24. NASA also owns the Orion capsule at the top of the rocket. It can stow four astronauts and a lot of stuff. For a ride up to lunar orbit, that's about 240,000 miles out. And for this 42-day test mission, 40,000 miles beyond that. The cost? $4.1 billion just for this launch. But to be fair, first launches, testing new technology, they're always the most expensive. To discuss the Artemis One mission and also the state of the space industrial base report, we have Namrata Goswami. She's an independent scholar and author on space policy and great power politics. And Chris Quilty, he pioneered Wall Street analysis of the commercial space sector and is the founder of Quilty Analytics. And Chris Stott. Just like the Wikipedia page says, he's a Manx-born U.S. citizen and a serial space entrepreneur with big data plans for the moon. Here's our conversation. Hello, Nami, Chris, and Chris. It's great to have the three of you on the podcast. Thanks, Laura. Thanks, Laura. Thank you, Laura. Wonderful to be, here. Great to be here. I've brought you all together to discuss Monday's Artemis One mission. That date actually happens to be the day when this episode will go live. Now, there's going to be a ton of coverage 
because hey ho, you know, who doesn't like a good launch of what's supposed to be the most powerful space launch vehicle ever? It's exciting. But this launch has much more to offer. You know, we can go much further into deeper and strategic implications, some of which each of you represent in a way. So let's get into introductions so the audience can hear where this discussion is going. Nami, why don't you start? Sure, Laura. So my name is Namrata Goswami, and I am an independent scholar, and I study space policy and great power competition. And uh, very recently, I co-authored a book called Scramble for the Skies, The Great Power Competition to Control the Resources of Outer Space with Peter Garretson. And I also enjoy teaching space policy at the Thunderbird School of Global Management, Arizona State University. So very happy to be here, Laura. Now, as I have two Chris's on this episode, for the listening audience's sake, I'm going to refer to Chris Quilty as either Chris Q or Quilty and Chris Stott as Chris S or Stott, unless there's some nickname that I don't actually know about. I mean, are we good with that, guys? Works for me. Works for me, too. Excellent. So, Chris Q or Quilty, tell us about you. Uh, first, I, I'm the Chris that speaks the normal English, but um, Chris will will kick in later. But um, so my background, I have spent 20 years on Wall Street as a stock analyst uh, working for a firm called Raymond James. Uh, the last 10 to 15 years, I spent exclusively focused on the satellite and space industry. And by exclusive, I mean, I was the only one on Wall Street that wrote on the space industry. Uh, pretty sleepy, uh, undercovered area of aerospace and defense. Um, I left, started my own boutique six years ago. I've uh, got a small group of folks today. Uh, we do research, uh, both company level and thematic research, with an emphasis really on, on the finance that is my background. Uh, we also do provide investment banking services. And from every now and then, we'll, we'll do a little bit of consulting work. Uh, headquartered down in St. Petersburg, Florida, and uh, glad to be on the show and an opportunity to talk about this subject. Okay, before we get away from your introduction, Chris Q, you also did put together the first SPAC, right? Oh, goodness. Yes. Um, little, little known fact, uh, the SPAC phenomenon actually began back in 2008, 2009. Uh, when I was at Raymond James, we brought Iridium uh, public through a SPAC transaction. Then, uh, as in now, uh, everything didn't go smoothly. Uh, we did get their, their money. They did get public. And that was the, the seed investment that eventually got them to be the you know, $6 billion market cap, very successful company they are today. So uh, maybe everyone should keep that in mind as, as they look at their, uh, their list of ticker symbols from last year that uh, happy endings uh, can eventually work out. And Chris S. Stott, what about you? You have been involved in space for a long time, and it's also personal. No, well, thank you. Thank you for having me today, too. I really appreciate it. Great to be here with Nami and with Chris. And you're right, there's two Chris's. We're both in St. Petersburg, which is turning out to be quite the little center for entrepreneurial and satellite space. It's, it's a great place to be. And um, no, yeah, so I'm CEO and founder of Lone Star Data Holdings. We're putting the first data centers on the lunar surface. And I, I guess we'll talk about that a little later. I've uh, been on faculty at the International Space University for almost 20 years now. It's wild. Um, 
Prior to Lone Star, I'm CEO and founder of the world's largest commercial provider of satellite spectrum, Mansat. Uh, uh, we uh, represent companies at the ITU, and uh, with our customers, we help provide, well, help them provide broadband to over 3 billion people around the world. Uh, prior to that, Lockheed Martin, working on the Deep Space Network and TGIS programs at NASA's CSOC uh, contract. And then prior to that, McDonnell Douglas and Boeing, and prior to that, politics, White House, Senate, and the British Parliament. So, but always love space. Space has always been the passion and uh, very fortunate to have married, met and married my best friend, Nicole Stott, who just retired as an astronaut too. So it is very much the flavor with us. And despite my funny accent, uh, I am an American citizen uh, by choice. Um, <laughs> one, of the old, one of the old school ones, I swam over. <laughs> I, said, I joke, my arms are still tired. You know? Thank you all for such wonderful introductions. So now we'll get to it. For the geostrategic view, Nami, I'd like you to kick off this discussion. Can you set the stage? What does the Artemis One mission mean in great power competition? Is this the U.S. returning to the great moon game? It's been five decades since anything human rated, let alone crude, has gone beyond low Earth orbit. Yeah, that's a great question to actually start the discussion. So I think what the Artemis One launch would do, especially the space launch system, is that it would showcase a return of sorts of NASA and the United States to the great game of competition, right? So if you think about the background of how Artemis was actually conceived, it was basically a reaction to China's landing on the far side of the moon in 2019. And then we remember right after that, former Vice President Mike Pence giving a speech in Huntsville, calling on the United States and NASA to actually land astronauts on the moon by 2024, right? Now that date, of course, has been shifted back to 2026. There's a bit of uncertainty. So the geostrategic consequence of this is this, that the United States would be able to now showcase at least one capability that it said it would do in a particular time frame, which was actually 2016 earlier and pushed back to 2022. So that would be a showcasing of capability for NASA itself, right? And also in terms of showcasing an ability to send an uncrewed mission back after Apollo, after so many years after Apollo. So a return to the moon of sorts. I would actually argue that in terms of geostrategic consequences at the level of uh, competition, I think the Artemis One and how the Artemis program has been conceived might not actually challenge the Chinese perception of how they visualize their moon program. So for China, the moon program and the articulation for their moon program is about space resources, space utilization, space development, and long-term presence. The Artemis program, on the other hand, is a lot about space exploration, sending the next woman and the first person of color to the moon, which China does not have. So it might be showcasing of capability, but in the long-term scheme of things, the Chinese lunar program is much more ambitious uh, as stated through their white paper and through their uh, space scientists articulating their program. You know, the Global Times, which is a Chinese state-run media organization, it had an article a couple of days ago, and it was pretty dismissive of U.S. efforts. You know, before uh, the article started banging the pots and pans about how China expects the U.S. to be more aggressive in space, I imagine China will actually be watching closely, as will Russia. Yes, they will. Actually, uh, I'm glad you bought the Global Times article up because I just went through it. 
And uh, I mean, this is not just the Global Times putting it out a few days back. This has been the articulation of Wu Wering, who's the chief designer of China's lunar program, right? And uh, also uh, the head of uh, one of their uh, lunar design program, uh, Li Peizhang, who also points out that uh, it is really critical for China to be able to go to a particular part of the moon first. Right. And so the argument that they have put forward is that if you want to have a permanent presence, say, on the South Pole in collaboration with Russia, it's important to achieve that by 2036. And this particular Global Times article actually has brought forward the date to 2030. Uh, and so by 2030, they hope to be able to send um, uh, Chinese taikonauts to the moon on the Long March 5DY. So that's a uh, vehicle that they want to develop primarily for the moon, right? Let and me so, just jump in for a quick for yeah. a quick second. I mean, six years, that's unheard of here in the United States, moving up a space program, you know, quasi deadline. I, I mean, is this for reals? I mean, will they actually make it by 2030? I would say that 2036 is more realistic, which the Chinese government has actually supported through funding and an official program. I think in Laura, so if you understand the Chinese system, it is not unusual for a particular space scientist or the head of a particular mission to give out a speech where they would pressurize the Chinese government to actually fund the program to escalate it. For example, their space-based solar power program, very similar uh, tactic, which actually succeeded because China is the only country with an official space-based solar power program today with full support from the Chinese Communist Party. So I think this particular article and Long Liao Hao, who's the designer of the Long March uh, rockets, basically putting out a speech uh, which hasn't made it to the Chinese white paper or the five-year plan as yet, right? So we don't know. It could be a pressure tactic, very uh, important to put it out now because of what SLS is achieving, for example, so much focus on NASA. But I would argue that in the long term, they have a very long term strategic vision. And uh, the one thing I saw in the article for the first time, actually, that they actually kind of downplayed uh, NASA's capability to meet its deadlines, as you said. And also they argued that NASA has set deadlines 2024 for a human return to the moon already shifted back to 2026. And then they said uh, USSpace.com argues that this is not going to be achievable. Uh, this goal, they have not achieved it before and they will not achieve it today. And I think this is a reaction, of course, to how much SLS is getting in terms of uh, visibility. But what China has successfully done is to underplay the long-term impact geostrategically, because don't forget, for China, the audience is not just the US. Their audience, as I mentioned to you again and again, it's the 140 member states of the Belt and Road Spatial Information Corridor, their own people in terms of legitimacy building, and also to argue that China's lunar program is much more based on economic return, space development, and how it actually contributes to China's grand strategy. So they argue that they have a superior space program. The US basically wants to relive the Apollo years. So it's basically a repeat of Apollo. Wow. No, Nami, well said. Uh, Lawrence, okay if I jump in for a second? Absolutely. No, thank you. Well, Laura, you said six years, and I would just remind everyone gently that September the 12th, is it, I think, is the, sixth, is the 50th anniversary of uh, JFK, his speech at Rice University, and within six years, we were on the lunar surface as a nation. 
So six years is is doable, especially when you've got some you know communist dictatorship uh, driving everything forward. But we are, as Nami says, very much in the great game. It's it. This is this is it. This is almost end game. Uh, it's the high ground. Please never forget that the moon is the ultimate. Is the most important strategic, military, and economic and commercial location in the solar system. Whoever controls the moon controls the Earth. They control all orbital space. They control all access to Mars and beyond and the resources. We are in the race of our lives, and it is really quite alarming. Uh, but as Winston Churchill said, you know, you can trust Americans to do the 10 worst things before they do the right thing. And I think finally, with Artemis, and especially with the NASA CLIPS program, Commercial Lunar Payload Services, finally, we're realizing this with the creation of the Space Force and the other members of the armed services and NASA and commerce as well. We're waking up to the fact that we are in the race of our lives. And we're in the race of our lives, not just for our country, but for the free peoples of the world. I know that sounds dramatic. It's meant to be. Washington needs to wake up and get going. We beat the Soviet Union. Now we have to beat their older, bigger, better funded, you know, go playing older brother, China. And we will. Of course we will. It just gets a little tense every now and then. Sorry, so you, well, you asked me, right? <laughs> I did. And it's Chris perfect. Like, she knows what I'm like. Yeah, it's, sorry. It, and it's perfect, though, because it goes right into, you know, my next question for Nami. And that has to do with um, this week we've had a report that's come out of the uh, state of the space industrial base. I was there at the workshop with you. And I remember hearing a major complaint that the US is without a strategic vision for how the defense and commercial space sectors should realize the possible economic bounty on the lunar surface. Could this launch shift that? That's yeah. uh yeah so yeah so the state of the space industrial base report that came out yesterday uh, was released yesterday uh had a very interesting recommendation and as you said you and I were in that workshop in Albuquerque so i think the first recommendation if you see it, there is a clear recognition that there is as chris was mentioning a uh, great competition for strategic advantage and uh and there is also the recognition that uh, china has actually uh basically articulated that space will play a critical role in establishing China as a leader, not just in space, but international order by 2045. So the report recognizes that. I think that what, what is interesting is that the report also recognizes that the US doesn't seem to have a strategic vision as yet. I know Chris hopes that there, that is the case and Artemis basically fulfills that. But uh, the report argues that because there is a lack of understanding at what level China is playing, because it's very implicit, it's not like the Soviet Union where there was a very clear articulation of countering uh, US uh, you know, ideological role in the world. So China's role is so implicit and it's actually doing it in a very strategic way. The one way that China has actually achieved all the goals in space, including in artificial intelligence, technology innovation is because it's not involved in any conflict. There is no distraction for China except Taiwan. And that also escalates because of what happens with the US, right? Whereas the US has been distracted for so many years with the Middle East, with Afghanistan, you know, that the focus on great power competition and the realization that China is becoming a, 
very clear peer competitor has not yet dawned. And I think uh, I would argue that if you think about the Artemis launch, one launch from that particular perspective, because there is such different shifts of focus, I think the US space program is still a lot about space exploration, space science. How do you improve knowledge by going to the moon of earth, space weather, also uh, you know, climate change? that I don't think there is the, and I said this before, that I don't think the realization has happened as yet in the strategic community. It might have happened in the commercial side that uh, the, U, the Chinese space program is not the old Soviet space program. It's a very different space program. China has very articulated, very different visions. Russia has joined in into the Chinese conception of space being an economic uh, advantages benefit back to Chinese society. Their calculation is that if we, for example, spend about 70 million on a long March launch, we actually have the return of about a billion, right? So it's a very economic rationale for their investment because in the Chinese grand strategic thinking, the country that has economic capability will be the country that will be able to invest in its military resources and then can establish an alignment structure that is attractive to the world, right? So it's a very grand strategic thinking which I don't think the Artemis One launch will change or would have much of an impact. I mentioned economic bounty very particularly because, of course, the Chinese are, are looking at that. And I also know that there are many here in the United States, in Europe, uh, South Africa, Australia or Australasia that are also looking at this economic bounty that may be present on the moon. Uh, Chris Stott, your company, Lone Star, sees that bounty on the moon. Tell us about what Lone Star is planning to do with it. No, well, thank you, Laura. With us, Lone Star Data Holdings, Lone Star, we're working to put the first in a series of ever-capable smart devices, data centers, up on the lunar surface, leveraging NASA's CLIPS missions, and NASA has done a wonderful job with CLIPS, created a marketplace for uh, payloads to go to and from the moon. It's, it's superb. But we're doing that for a terrestrial market, for disaster recovery, business continuity. So we're leveraging this huge investment to go to the moon. Uh, I think it's over 130 missions planned, $93 billion. It's incredible. But just like satellite communications, uh, 1962, the first ComSat went up, Telstar, in the middle of all this great, you know, the original Apollo program and the rush to the moon. Similar thing today. We're commercial. We see Earth's largest satellite as an incredible location to do business. It is stable, it's weather free, it's climate change free. It has line of sight communications to the entirety of the planet. Every 24 hours, the earth spins underneath us. And more importantly, it allows us to leverage the unique environment of the moon from temperature to sunlight, to the materials on the lunar surface and down below eventually in the lava tubes to actually build out late, uh, our data center infrastructure. Uh, yes, we do edge processing as well. Of course we do. But we're doing this for market demand. We're working from customer demand. Uh, we enjoy it. It's wonderful. Our first test mission is headed out with Intuitive Machines this December. And our second mission, which is our first full data center, is headed up uh, next summer with Intuitive Machines on their second mission to the lunar, to the lunar South Pole. Actually, our hardware today uh, just entered manufacturing complete stage and is heading off to testing at NASA Ames. So... Ironically, the Chinese government, the People's Republic of China, uh, have actually filed a patent for lunar data centers. So we're not the only people who've seen the opportunity here because people got data centers on the moon. I'm like, yeah, 
We were just turning the moon into a smart device. It's quite natural and quite normal to store your most precious mission critical data out of the biosphere. You know, we just saw London melt and data centers have to shut down. We saw Texas freeze. We saw fires in California. We've seen attacks on immutable data and storage. It's data is our most precious commodity as a species outside of ourselves. It's incredibly fragile, but agile. You need to keep it in more than one place. And there with the moon not being sovereign, thanks to the Outer Space Treaty, with moon not being sovereign, we're able to apply satellite law, satellite precedents, satellite regulations, hosted data, data sovereignty, and actually meet an entire set of demand for customers on the moon. So we have US domestic, international customers, they're all making their own announcements. And, but yeah, so we're using Earth's largest satellite in the ultimate form of satellite communications and data storage. Yeah. Think of us like men in black meet Swiss bankers. And now how does the Artemis One launch, assuming that it's successful, affect your mission with intuitive machines and what about the future? No, thank you. Well, with intuitive machines and the NASA Eclipse program, I think intuitive machines have won three, if not four of the missions, Astrobotic, Firefly, others. And that's a precursor mission for Artemis, for the human landings, these robotic landers. And uh, for Artemis One to go forward would be tremendous. They're flying a bunch of different CubeSats themselves, all doing amazing science in, on, and around the moon. So all of that science, all of that learning helped us. But also there's other missions going up to the moon. You have the missions uh, contracted with SpaceX and others. So Artemis One being successful is tremendous. Uh, but also don't forget one thing that I have found really kind of, you know, in the nicest possible way, alarms the Chinese, is the strength of our military industrial complex, is the strength of our entrepreneurs in the United States. I remember talking to someone uh, over in Europe, uh, one of China's client states, uh, and there was, they were saying, oh, you, you, you awful Americans, you, your billionaires are going to space. And I'm like, yeah, they are, aren't they? Yeah, NASA's going, we're going, and our billionaires are going. And think about that. These incredible individuals who've done incredible things in life and built amazing companies are using their personal wealth to push human, humanity and American interests in space, as well as our government, as well as NASA and et cetera. And I think it's the most wonderful thing. It's amazing what empowered free men and women can do. And so that's when I look at Artemis and I look at everything SpaceX and Blue Origin and the others are doing. I think it's tremendous. I'm a fan. So... Jumping off the fans uh, uh, bit there, I'd like to get Chris Quilty in here. You know, there have been a number of awards by NASA, and there are, have been contracts agreed to between companies um, that cover things like additive manufacturing, data centers, uh, to setting up factories and or processing on the moon. You know, how will the SLS launch affect the availability of private investment or venture capital is their interest for the moon. How will SLS impact it? Uh, not at all. Um, so uh, you know, it's been interesting. I'm I'm a finance guy, but I, I've enjoyed all this strategic discussion. So maybe I'll I'll frame my answer uh, from a strategic perspective. So if we think back to the great Ronald Reagan and the, the last Cold War that happened, you know, there's a, a storyline that goes that the US won the Cold War by pushing defense spending, by investing in things like Star Wars and literally bankrupting the Soviet Union, which couldn't keep up with our level of spending. 
So when I look at the SLS program, my one and only hope for the program is that the Chinese would be stupid enough to mimic it and burn up all their money investing in a rocket that has no future commercial purpose to speak of. Um, it, it has been a lodestone for NASA. I, I feel bad for NASA. NASA has done good things over the past decade or so. Chris mentions the CLIPS program, commercial cargo, commercial crew. They've been innovative. They've been leaning on the commercial industry that has been innovating at an unseen of pace, but they have been stuck with this program, SLS, which they never asked for, which they never had a payload for, which today arguably they have no purpose for. Uh, and it has sucked dry their budget. It has starved them of investment in things that NASA does good, like basic research and planetary missions. And it has done one thing. It has enriched uh, Congress uh, in all 50 states, which have jobs uh, associated with the program. Yes, that's one of the things they're proud of and promote on the website is there's jobs in all 50 states, which runs exactly counter to the commercial narrative of companies like SpaceX that are vertically integrating. They're pulling it all in-house. They're reducing costs. They're increasing efficiency. They're increasing the rate of innovation. So um, I'll say something that is politically incorrect, but should not at all be controversial, which is I hope the program fails. Um, do I want to see a big fireball in the sky you know, for the $20 billion um, that, that we've spent on it? Uh, I won't say that, um, but I would like to see an early end to the program uh, so that NASA can actually take real steps forward, not saddled by a political requirement to fund this program. Yeah, Laura, if I may jump in there. So I think that's uh, really, uh, actually very vital what you've just said, Chris, because that's my perspective too. Because when I think about the large scale competition that is going on and I see the numbers that China is crunching uh, and, and the very fact that they now have the Long March 9, which is their version of the space launch system, which uh, is a heavy lift rocket, uh, they're actually uh, giving out numbers that are in the millions and also trying to make it reusable. So by 2030, by 2025, they hope to make the Long March 9 uh, at least prototype reusable and by 2030 to achieve that, right? So they're going for a space program that is sustainable in the long term. Whereas if you look at the space launch system, I mean, I know when this rocket launches, I'll feel proud. But if I think about the cost of 4 billion a launch, and also the fact that it's an expendable rocket, it's just a rehash of Saturn V, right? All 1970s technology brought back uh, when you have a starship that's going to fly very soon, which is a completely reusable heavy lift rocket, which is sustainable. So I think if the US actually thinks about competing with a country like China, it would require a complete logistics system, which is sustainable. I mean, the Artemis bill is $94 billion. It's a very expensive competitive program that the US is signing on to, which might not be sustainable, including the Inspector General, Auditor General of uh, NASA says that, right? And so my worry is that, that, okay, you do a few launches, but will you be able to sustain this expensive program in the long term? I might feel proud on August 29th, but 
pride is not enough. You have to have a program that is competing in the long term. So, and Chris Quilty, now that we kind of understand that the SLS may not really bolster investment into uh, space businesses that have aspirations for the moon. Nevertheless, is there an investment market for those companies that do aspire to you know get to the moon? Oh, absolutely. Um, we track companies that have raised some level of funding or have announced some reasonable business model built around the cislunar market, uh, which encapsulates everything from, you know, in-orbit manufacturing to refueling uh, to lunar uh, programs like the one Chris is pursuing. And, you know, that spreadsheet, uh, it, it grows every week where it's well north of 250 companies. Um, some number of those will be successful. And I think when you look at the prospect for something like uh, Starship, I mean, dial it back one second. I mean, just the SpaceX Falcon 9, which is a pretty standard, except for reusability, kerosene, liquid oxygen, launch heavy lift launch vehicle, um, it has revolutionized the space industry. It has driven down costs by one order of magnitude. And when you look at what Starship will do, which is drive it down by another order of magnitude and achieve that airplane-like reusability, uh, they hope, it, it really just opens up the aperture on the business models that close. You know, I, I've sat down with Chris's CFO for a half day and, and I pressure leaked his entire model and it makes sense. It is cheaper, it is cheaper to build a data center on the moon than it is on Earth, to build and operate, I should say. Um, that may not sound like it makes sense. And I think we ran those numbers, Chris, using the Falcon mm -hmm. Heavy, not even Starship. So, uh, you know, there are similar models I can look at for different activities in space. I was out on the West Coast a month ago or so meeting with some companies that had manufacturing uh, that they intended to do in space. You hear pharmaceuticals and Z-Bland fiber and compound semiconductors, and those business models close, and they close again using today's economics. Um, I think that's a reality. Um, you know, markets exist for the product, the economics work. We just haven't yet, you know, fully funded and gotten these companies operational. But when people realize that there's ways to make money in space, the investment will follow. Absolutely. Yeah. Building on Chris, thank you. Building on that. I mean, that's, you know, Chris says we're VC funded. And the VCs don't give money if their business case doesn't close and they don't see a path to profitability. And um, we hit revenue this year. I mean, technically, as of today, we're post we're a post-revenue <laughs> seed round VC funded company doing stuff on the moon. And, and Chris really hit the nail on the head. It's commerce, commerce, commerce. And third decade of the 21st century. And there we are with a 430, 440 billion dollar annual space industry, satellite communications, remote sensing, human space flight. Uh, beginnings of, as Chris says, beginnings of manufacturing in space, from space stations all the way through the satellites and lunar missions. And look, we're flying helicopters on Mars using Snapdragon ships flying, use, and Ubuntu and Canonical, who are one of our partners, are amazing. So it's there. We're just, we're just leveraging it and utilizing it, and it makes money, and it's the most wonderful thing. And that money, 100% of the money spent in space isn't. It's spent down here on Earth with investors and returns and shareholders and employees and facilities and equipment 
It's a huge benefit to our economies. And, and, and uh, Nami, I think you mentioned that, how the Chinese see that economic benefit as well. And there's a great quote in the movie I saw a couple of weeks ago. I won't even tell the name of the movie. I'd be embarrassed. But it was a quote where there's one, one particular character says, victory has defeated you. <laughs> uh, right. And it's like we won that first Cold War. We won the Apollo. We won everything else. And off we went. And we're just now waking up to the fact that we're in that second race. And it's fascinating to see what our greatest opponent is doing. And we can learn from that opponent. Actually, we can take a book out of Sun Tzu, you know. <laughs> so it's always interesting to learn from thy enemies and learn from what we can, you know, emulate and do better. And I have great faith in America that we'll do better. Now, before we sign off, and especially because I know I've got to get uh, Chris Stott on his way to his plane, quick poll. Are we all watching the SLS launch, no matter how we feel about, you know, how much it costs to to get it to where it is now, which is standing vertically on a launch pad in Florida? NAMI? Well, I think to see a rocket fight the gravity of Earth is always exciting. So to be able to get it up there after so many years since Obama got it into our midst in 2010, uh, it's a very exciting prospect, the largest rocket, that's exciting. But uh, I would also watch it from how other countries are going to view it, right? Because it's not just China. India is going to be watching this. Japan's going to be watching this, the whole of Africa. And so let's see how they view it. You know, I'm sure they'll be excited when they see the rocket take off, but then the consequences of it, the expense of it, the fact that it's not reusable uh, would also make into the discourse. So, yeah. But I would be excited to see it take off. <laughs> okay, put in that context, I hope it doesn't blow up. But um, <laughs> but I, I'm I'm not driving over there to watch it. I think Chris and I can sit on the seawall with a with a beer and a cigar, and we'll we'll watch it from there. Absolutely, Chris. I will literally be there with you this Monday. We'll do that. And for all the people who worked on it, I sincerely hope it succeeds. And then I hope it stops. <laughs> right, everyone. Thank you so much for your time and for coming on the downlink. And I hope to have you back on the podcast as soon as possible, because this was a lot of fun. Thank you. Thank you, Laura. Thanks, Laura. Thank you. That's it for this week. If you like what you're hearing, follow the downlink on Twitter and subscribe to the podcast on your favorite podcast platform. For the latest defense news and analysis, listen to the Daily Defense and Aerospace Report podcast hosted by Vago Maradian and listen to Kavis Ships to hear the latest on what's happening in the maritime domain. I'm Laura Winter, and thank you for listening. Thank you.